Episode three. Yes, you are back with Vincent Max on the Son of a Pitch podcast, and today we are talking to Ryan Jordan. Yes, not the son of Michael Jordan. From New Zealand, he's a cool dude. Uh, I formerly worked with him at a place called Icon. Um, he has a great story and uh, a lot of advice for, for young planners starting out as to whether or not you'd be a generalist and a specialist. Yeah, and he's talked about uh, some, some of his great campaigns, like a moment against silence and some cool... God of War stuff that combines the ingenuity of uh, the PSP and burgers. <laughs> and burgers, weirdly early. enough. Yeah. Um, probably one of the uh, few guests that we've had on the podcast that's actually won Khan Lions, which is pretty cool. The brief, we gave him a cracker brief around eating bugs. We won't spoil it for you. It's somewhere towards the end of the podcast, so listen to it. Um, it's a lot of fun. One of the, one of the best responses we've had. Absolutely. Uh, we'll have you eating bugs by the end of the week. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll just like do the Miami Ad School ad now. So if you like this podcast, you're interested in getting into the creative and strategic dark arts. Yeah, you like thinking about how to get people to eat bugs and other awesome challenges like that. Or if you're just sitting at your desk and you're staring at the spreadsheet in front of you and you're just like, fuck my life, I want to do something a bit more interesting then uh, give us an email. Well, give us an email. Send us an email. <laughs> at the Americans a- are recoiling in horror right now. <laughs> <laughs> give us an email yeah. at uh, son of a pitch. Uh, no, it's podcastsoap at gmail.com. Yep. And what will we do, Max? Uh, we will waive your $100 application fee to Miami Ad School. That's a school that trains you to be a creative and strategist. It's based around the world, and you basically save 100 bucks by just sending us an email to... Or giving us an email, that uh, son of a pitch. No. What's our email? Podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's right. That's right. Podcast, S-O-A-P, at gmail.com. Yeah, this right. is the professionalism you've come to expect from the son of a pitch yeah, podcast. let's just get into the pod, yeah? Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Time to get it started. Give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is Son of a Pitch. Son of a Pitch. So, Ryan Jordan, welcome to the Son of a Pitch podcast. Hey boys, how's it going? <laughs> yeah, good, good. Really good. How, how are you doing over the ditch there in, uh, in Auckland? I should set the scene for, for all of the people listening. Uh, Ryan is in New Zealand at the moment, uh, did have a little bit of a stint in Australia, but has gone back to his homeland. So uh, yeah, what's it, what's it like over there in the land of the long white cloud? It's hot. It's hot at the moment. Um, it's probably the hottest summer on record in New Zealand. So um, I'm kind of feeling like I'm back in Sydney at the moment. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's warm. It's good, though. It's, it's nice being here. Auckland's great at this time of year. Um, it's a little bit, little bit later. We're a couple of he- hours ahead of you guys, obviously. So it's, it's, the sun's coming down. I don't know if you can see it in the background there. But, um, yeah, things are good here at the moment. Yeah, I I think um, one of the most interesting questions that we ask like uh, most people is kind of like where 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 did you start in advertising? When did you first figure it out? Well, um, I guess pretty humble beginnings actually. Um, I did I in no way, shape, or form did I consider advertising to be 
something that I'd end up doing while I was at university. I actually started, started studying physiotherapy and I thought I was going to be a physiotherapist for the All Blacks. Um, <laughs> but why the All Blacks? Did you just have really high ambitions as a physiotherapist? I, uh, I, I thought I'd shoot for the stars. Um, but when I kind of got into studying physio, I actually realized that most physios actually end up just going and working on old people's feet. And so I recognized that wasn't something that I wanted to be doing. Um, so I just, um, I thought, shit, okay, what am I going to do? Um, this isn't for me. So I just went and started studying marketing and comms. Um, and and it was quite broad and generic initially and started doing some um, advertising papers just because I thought it might be kind of interesting. Um, and that was kind of the start, really. Kind of really enjoyed that mostly out of what I was kind of doing at university. And I was lucky enough while I was at university to get offered an internship at a media agency called Starcom in Auckland um, in my last year. And so I thought, why not? Um, so I went into that and yeah, I ended up being there for about five years in a media agency. Um, in those days in Auckland, strategists didn't really exist, definitely not in, definitely not in media agencies. And so I, um, at that time, Starcom was very closely linked to Saatchi and Saatchi in New Zealand. So we worked in the same building, we worked on the same clients. It was kind of a full service agency, but separated into two brands. So um, I kind of took a natural sort of affinity to, to the strategy guys up in Saatchi's and I just kind of forced my way into that um, and just kind of, you know, made myself annoying and go and went and chatted to them when we we're working on kind of the same projects. And, and yeah, I kind of recognized very quickly that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to be a strategist and um, ultimately I recognized that, you know, being a junior young, young buck in the kind of game here in New Zealand, it was, it was going to be quite difficult to find, uh, the market's much smaller here obviously than it is over in Australia and recognizing that there's a really finite amount of strategy jobs going at any given time, especially for a young guy. So I made the choice to move over to Sydney. Um, and that's where I actually met Vince, worked at Icon, Icon Communications there, worked with John, who you spoke to a few weeks ago. So. Yes, yeah. the inimitable John Halpin. Yeah, so John hired me, um, and yeah, I think probably just mostly he wanted another Kiwi around here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was great. That was kind of my first introduction to properly working in a strategy role, and I loved it. Um, Icon in that time went from a media agency when I first started to becoming a full service agency, you know, WPP kind of um, expanded um, the offering and bringing kind of creative agencies into the mold. And, and so that was cool. So I kind of, kind of got to diversify my kind of strategic kind of projects that I was working on and doing more kind of creative and branding, which is um, where I was kind of really enjoying, you know, working the most. So did that for about four years and, and kind of loved it. But um, home came calling and, and jumped back on a plane eventually and came back home after about four years. Yeah, right. Well, it, the the Icon thing's really interesting because they were like, they were a comms planning agent. Well, I, yeah, I, like I say comms planning, um, like they were a hardcore media agency, but you'd obviously come over to do something a little bit more creative and working on like Coke and Combank. Like those are two big ass clients, and to to come over to Australia to work on those, like, what were the thoughts running through your head? What what did you understand your job to be, and what were the ambitions there? Well, I came over specifically looking to get into a strategy role. At, at that point in my career, I didn't care where it was really, um, and and the more I kind of spoke to different agencies over in Australia. 
media agency, our kind of the media agency at the time had a lot of really good kind of momentum. Um, they had all the biggest media kind of accounts in the country, like Coke and um, you know Combank, for example, and and um, kind of getting into. I mean, I'd never obviously worked in Australia before, so I didn't know who had momentum and who didn't. I didn't know where to work and who had the good culture and all that sort of side of things. But kind of going through that kind of process of speaking to different agencies, I recognized that it was a place that um, wasn't necessarily seen as a strategic powerhouse, but they had just kind of hired John. Um, I kind of went through that process of obviously kind of getting interrogated in terms of what he had been working on and kind of, you know, obviously kind of the naked sort of side of things was something I was really into, mm. which was this kind of past and background. So um, I thought, why not? It's a good opportunity to kind of get in um, to a pure strategy role, work with someone who's really smart that I can kind of learn off. And, and I guess the rest was history. Um, initially it was quite media strategy focused in terms of comms. Um, at that point it wasn't a full service agency. So um, at, but in saying that it was, it was cool. Like I was really enjoying just kind of having a focus and remit on strategy and, and I was really enjoying it. And quite quickly, that's when, uh, maybe after a year of, of being there, that's when it became a full service model and bringing creative sort of services into the building and, and, and quite rapidly the role changed and diversified even more. So that's when I kind of really, really started to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, coming from a uh, full service, uh, coming from a strictly like media focused uh, background, how did you find the pros and cons of going into a full service agency? Well, I didn't really know it at the time because you, you, you know hindsight's a, a, a good thing. But I recognised quite quickly that my kind of background in media had given me a really broad understanding of just how comms work and the roles of channels and I identified quite quickly when I was having conversations with people that that meant something, you know, when you can kind of think just rather than just kind of thinking about an idea and it's kind of big sense, you can think around implications for have you considered this kind of use of channel or, um, you know, those kind of conversations were kind of being quite fruitful. And so um, I recognized quite quickly that just my kind of broad you know, first few years in the industry of kind of being in media and comms and I guess a lot of the stuff, of uh, you know, even though it wasn't technically a full service agency, kind of being quite closely tied to Saatchi's at the start of my career and working with strategists then, I just had a really broad kind of first few years in the industry and so I kind of felt like I learned a lot quite quickly and so it was quite interesting actually coming over to Australia where obviously things are much bigger and there's much more kind of specialist skill sets. And so being someone who was more of a generalist, um, I felt like I was, had a bit of a head start on a few people, like kind of at my level. Um, and so, yeah, I saw that that was valued quite quickly, which was cool. How did you pick up kind of the strategy discipline? Like, was it very intuitive for you? I mean, it seems like an intuitive process the way that you were explaining it just then. Or did you like have formal ways of kind of learning the craft? Not necessarily because I worked with, in terms of the formal side of learning and the discipline of strategy, not really. I guess the intuitiveness came with just thinking about, I, I always kind of wanted to think about things bigger than my remit. And so, although my role initially in a media agency might have been quite focused around comms and how would you kind of bring that idea that idea that Sarge has created to life in a media perspective, I was always kind of really interested and intrigued around the the reason why we were doing that kind of kind of 
solution or idea. And as I kind of mentioned, kind of going in and kind of observing those conversations that was kind of happening in the strategic process up at Saatchi's, um, I kind of quite quickly just kind of latched on to that as something that I knew I wanted to do. And, and so, yeah, I guess that kind of elevated the work that I was doing in terms of I always felt like I was trying to add value over and above, you know, what my remit or discipline kind of required me to do. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the kind of intuition side to it. I mean, always having to kind of adapt, obviously, and as you guys know very well, the discipline's kind of becoming much more broader and our roles are becoming so much more diversified all the time. And I guess, I guess that kind of intuition that comes into strategy and that curiosity with strategy as a discipline um, has always been there. And, and that's, that's what makes kind of learning kind of new ways of doing things really interesting to me. Um, that's an interesting point, the importance of strategists to be generalists and to have range. Um, why do you think planners need to break the chains of spe- specialization? Well, uh, it's, it's an interesting thought. And again, it's, it's something for me that I've kind of looked back retrospectively in terms of how I've approached my career. And I mean, it's kind of just happened that way that I, would, I was a generalist by starting in media, getting into full service agencies, and I've essentially been in full service agencies since then. Um, Whereas if I had the opportunity to go and work for a big creative shop right at the start of my career, like a Colenso or a DDB or, you know, the big powerhouses that are creative agencies, I would have said, absolutely, I would have loved that. Unfortunately, that opportunity didn't kind of present itself at that point. So um, I've kind of had to take a different path and, and, and kind of model my career more around just being a generalist and working in kind of integrated sort of agency offerings. Um, but in saying that, now that I've kind of done it for a period of time, like pretty much my whole career, I've, I've really enjoyed that and recognized that that's sort of my space to occupy. Um, because, you know, as you know, like agencies are still very siloed um, from a creative and media, PR, social, digital, there's whole lots of different kind of specialist sort of offerings. And what comes with that is kind of specialist strategists, um, you know, working for different agencies. Um, but I mean, I've, I've always just kind of thought, and I've increasingly seen the value of being able to go and have a conversation with a client that is much more holistic um, and just getting getting less into the weeds of the doing aspect of the role and more just kind of kind of trying to elevate the conversation into more of a how can we just kind of focus around the crux of what you're trying to do here as a brand. Um, and so I felt like a, my kind of way into those conversations has probably been more natural just because I'm used to thinking about things in a, in a pretty broad sense. So do you think if you were like starting out in a creative agency, like let's flip your career the other way around, if you were starting out in a very one-dimensional kind of creative zone, um, would you, uh, like what would your advice be for for that person starting out there and looking to, would it be to broaden the skill set or would it be to just like button down and just get specialist as hell? In saying that, I mean, the sort of agency models that I've worked with, there's probably less of a regularity or frequency of big kind of chunky projects to work on. And that's kind of one of the downsides, especially once you get into like smaller independent shops, which I've also done. Um, I did that when I first moved back from, from, um, from Sydney. Um, and, th- and that, I mean, that presents a new challenge in itself, you know, working in a smaller sort of environment like that. And that kind of where your generalism really kind of comes to the fore, like you're not just a strategist anymore. You're a, business consultant you're a new business kind of guy you're a suit from time to time um 
and and just learning how to run a business you know comes comes as part of that as well which was interesting but um yeah i i yeah i guess to kind of ladder back to your initial question i think being a generalist quickly gives you a really good grounding and makes you figure out what you want because i'm sure you guys have kind of can attest to there's a whole lot of kind of i speak to a whole lot of young young guys and girls that kind of come into the agency life and they want to be strategists you know they're like i want to be a strategist it looks shiny is what is where the <laughs> and then you they kind of you go okay cool let's come kind of shadow me on this project or whatever and they quite quickly figure out that it's not for them you know um so i think for some reason, strategy's got a lot of allure to it for, for young people in the industry. And and it's not till you really get in it or any discipline within what we do that you kind of really figure out what you really want. Mm. If that makes sense. Why do, you, why do you think strategy does have that allure and that shine? Uh, I don't know. Like, it's interesting. I think a lot of the big, you know, um, celebrity names within the industry are strategists, right? I mean, obviously, creative has its own sort of, you know, um, you know, space within that kind of pe- that's people that really look up to and stuff like that. But um, strategy, I guess, uh, well, at least for me, was something that was really interesting and exciting with the idea of going and um, you kind of own the start of the process. And you kind of get to you get to think about a business without jumping to a solution, and 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 you kind of see the kind of strategists and their work, and you kind of then you kind of see how they can kind of command a room and really kind of sell, you know, um, um, solve the problem before it gets to the solution, and 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 that seems really exciting and interesting to to someone who really wants to elevate their kind of position up in an agency. And so I know that that was like, for me, I kind of saw really, really cool strategists kind of such as again, when I was kind of at the, in, in the media agency, kind of going and commanding that side of the process and really inspiring creatives, you know, with kind of really sound, logical, but insightful kind of ways of, of thinking about things. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of, that was what kind of drew me in. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, working working with younger kids because we stalked your LinkedIn feed and we found that you go to high schools and you ke- teach kids about advertising. Uh, would you mind telling us a bit more about that and, and, and why you uh, why you do that? Yeah, well, it's it's something that we we as as where I work now, Dentsu, kind of do as a, a kind of community giving back sort of exercise where we go into 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 high schools around New Zealand that you know low decile sort of high school sort of situations where don't where ab- careers like advertising doesn't even come onto the radar because it's not something as you know the advertising industry is still a relatively privileged yeah. uh, industry that attracts a certain kind of person into the industry and, and for a lot of these kind of high schools you know advertise you, you go and talk to them about advertising and they're like what <laughs> um, so, so that's kind of something that we've we've kind of started doing and as part of my role I kind of have, have kind of got that into a bit of a rhythm where um, you know once every kind of couple of months we'll go into a into a high school I'll kind of talk to them about advertising I'll talk to them about my sort of path into it um, and kind of talk to them about what we do and just kind of give them a bit more of a flavor and context of what a day-to-day and life and advertising looks like because for a lot of these kids advertising just looks like a tv ad that they see on you know the tv and they don't recognize all the elements and process that goes into that and all the different ways that advertising can be expressed and so it's been really cool because um 
you know, I mean, ultimately you'd love to see some of these kids actually kind of start, you know, actually going and studying it and kind of thinking it as a, a logical way for them to kind of, kind of create a career around, um, you know, but it's very early at the start of that sort of process. And we're talking to like 15, 16 year olds and, and hopefully it brings a bit of fruit to that. Have you had any kids kind of come up to you after you've given a presentation and been like, hey, I'm kind of interested in this thing? We have. It's pretty cool. Like, I mean, man, some of the ideas, you know, because part of it is we give them like a brief, you know, a live brief to sort of work on and, and um, you know, something like Movember that I've worked on for, for, for a few years now, we kind of talk to them about that and the challenges that they face as a charity and then we give them a sort of brief to kind of work on for that. And the ideas that they come up with are really interesting. Like it's obviously they've got such a different perspective on life than what we have, you know, as, as being more older, like older than them and from different backgrounds and, and, and ethnicities and their kind of perspectives on coming up with an idea is just so different to what we're used to. So that's yeah. kind of really interesting and fascinating as well. Did one of them crack the brief? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's been ideas where I'm like, oh, shit, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> just get out your, no- your notebook and be like, steal this for later. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to tell my creative team about that one. but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, it's like it's interesting when you do, when you talk to kids about this stuff because they're they're so naive as as to the challenges of the advertising industry and like what channels you can't use and all of that type of stuff that I guess the possibilities are sort of endless. Well, what do you think is like seeing as you're like a comms planner who can look at like absolutely any channel and kind of come up with a plan that kind of fits in all of that type of stuff and like do the whole naked thing like everything communicates blah 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 um like how how do you kind of approach a media strat these days are you doing your same spots and dots and then just putting a creative lens over it or do you just start with a? I mean to be honest i'm not actually doing my my role not isn't necessarily kind of tied to doing media strategy i kind of haven't really been doing that for a little while what i do do though is um i predominantly work with the creative agencies within dentsu um and what I do bring is the ability to kind of bring down the kind of thinking into comms architecture and kind of thinking wow. about um, uh, the role of how we talk to people and where um, as a starting point for kind of media, um, particularly obviously in the instances where we're in a bit of a unique sort of agency model where we've got multiple different agency brands across creative media and PR. And some of those clients, we, we work across multiple kind of capabilities. And so in those sort of instances, I kind of act as the conduit between the creative and the brand sort of strategy and idea and kind of translate that down into briefing in a media team. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, the way I approach that is, is kind of using, um, I guess the ability to kind of really understand a creative idea um, and and being a part of that process kind of allows me to kind of think quite instinctively around where it should play, be placed and 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 the role of different channels need to play within that sort of idea because I've been part of that process and I think I think that's kind of one of the fundamental issues of when you split creative and media agencies is there's a handoff moment from a creative to a media agency where there's so much ambiguity around things that can get lost in translation. And so a creative or brand agency can work on an idea and a really cool kind of interesting concept, give that to a media agency and, and 
get lost in terms of the essence of the idea and then go and think about it as like a totally separate campaign. And so I think that's a big issue just with advertising in general at the moment, (laughs) big issue, I guess. But um, I guess that's where, again, going back to the earlier conversation we had around being a generalist and kind of having that ability to bridge the two disciplines, for me, feels like a bit of an advantage. So are you sitting in a room one-on-one with a brand planner then and then discussing kind of what the idea is and, and how that would evolve in media or... Are they giving you their idea and then you're figuring it out and then sending it back to them? Because sometimes these agency relationships get pretty weird, right? Uh, you can quite quickly get sucked into the weeds of, you know, getting taken advantage of understanding media that in that level of detail where you just kind of stay close to that process for too much. And I mean, there's a rhythm of obviously kind of needing to tap in and out of things when you're working across so many different kind of clients and agency brands that, um, you don't have the ability to stay as close to projects as you'd love to as, as, as much as you'd like. Um, so where I try to kind of add value is kind of getting the kind of strategy kind of for the creative idea kind of down pat, obviously the go through that ideation process with the creative agency, write a comms architecture and then kind of sit down with the media team to kind of go, this is, this is the opportunity for media. This is the kind of tasks that we need to kind of do. Um, and then they basically go away and work on it. And then, yeah, ideally we kind of have a check-in session to kind of for them to come back and kind of go, this is what we're thinking. And, and I kind of play a more consult sort of role in that respect. Um, but that's when I kind of try to tap out because otherwise, as I said, I can get really quite quickly sucked into the, into the into the weeds you know yeah got it now it, new zealand's a pretty interesting place for creativity at the moment and we have interviewed a lot of people who formerly worked in new zealand like 20 years ago or 30 years ago but no one that's like working as a contemporary planner in New Zealand right now. And there is some amazing creative work coming out of New Zealand. Like, what's the vibe there at the moment? What, what, what's kind of the opportunity? Like, like what, what does it look like from your eyes actually on the ground? Yeah, it's, it's always been a really interesting place to work. I mean, I grew up and started my career here. Yes, I spent a few years over in Sydney. Um, but New Zealand has always been, because it's such a small pretty creative country i mean we punch above our weight in terms of you know um you know taika waititi for example you know you know winning at the academy awards last last week peter jackson we've got this lord we've got this history of like kind of creative people who have really punched above their weight and i guess creativity is something that feels really intrinsic to new zealand the culture you think of maoridom and stuff there's a lot of kind of rich sort of creativity that goes into the natural culture of new zealand um, so that's one aspect, but then also with our relative size, like we're quite a small country, right? And so for a lot of a lot of kind of brands and clients, particularly global brands that we work on, we get the opportunity to be a bit of a test case for things and and we've got this sort of culture of trying and learning things and fail fast sort of mentality. And I think that's why we get the opportunity to kind of do these kind of really interesting, cool sort of ideas in the advertising sphere that get recognized on a global scale is because a lot of the kind of restraints and restrictions that might be in bigger, more conservative markets are a little bit looser here. And so that's something that's been kind of always true for New Zealand. And yes, that sort of tightened a little bit over the last sort of 10 or so years where, um, you know, the whole kind of challenge around brand building and getting the opportunity to do as much kind of brand, sort of really interesting 
kind of work in that sort of space has probably become less frequent as what it once was. And obviously that's a global sort of challenge. But what does still exist is these really cool, smaller, like tactical sort of interesting opportunities for brands to work on where we do get the opportunity to kind of, you know, do some really interesting creative work. And you kind of look at all the work that's winning kind of at effectiveness awards and, and kind of global creativity awards out of this country. It's, it's, it is smaller things. Mm. It's more kind of tactical ideas that you're not thinking about creativity in a really traditional linear way. It's not TV ads anymore. Um, it's kind of more interesting ideas that might live as an experiential sort of idea that kind of blows up into PR, you know, um, that is kind of getting all the, the kind of um, awards and the conversation kind of going around what's, what's doing really well here in this country. Um, and a, an idea like a moment against silence. That wasn't a TVC, right? That was a uh, a moment of PR that was uh, amplified across other channels, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, um, yes, yeah, so that 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 idea was for Mo- that idea was for um for Movember, which is yeah. a kind of charity client that I've worked on for the past few years. Um, that's that that idea was something that. It's kind of we built to over a period of time. We've kind of when I first started working on Movember and here in New Zealand, the charity was kind of in a really, um, I guess, declining space in terms of interest and participation donations. Um, and why? I mean, New Zealand's one of the most charity uh, charity kind of um, covered markets in the world. We've got the highest amount of charities per capita in the world, and so there's huh. just so many different charities kind of fighting for kind of our attention and donations. So. Um, a few years ago, I kind of worked with them around redefining their kind of strategy from less so to talk about participation of donations and into actually trying to encourage some of the behaviours mm-hmm. that they were trying to, to fund. Um, and mental health is something that kind of really um, is really prevalent here. Like mental illness is something that's really prevalent here in New Zealand. We, um, we've got some of the highest suicide kind of rates for men in the world. Um, Last year, we had our highest amount of suicides on record. Huh. Without without getting too morbid, why why is why is that the case? There's, there's I mean, there's a big, there's a there's a lot of kind of layers to this. I mean, Kiwi men um, struggle to talk about their feelings. We're quite a reserved bunch. We're we've kind of got this kind of archetypal male that kind of exists within New Zealand. That's all around. She'll be right. You know, if if you're feeling shit, keep it to yourself. Don't kind of burden your mates with what's going on. And and I guess as a result of that, a lot of guys just kind of when they're feeling a bit shit, they just bottle things up and they don't really feel like they've got a network of guy of mates to talk to about serious stuff. Um, and so and so what that leads to is a lot of guys kind of struggling in silence and feeling like they don't have um, an outlet to kind of talk about their emotions. Um, and so that's, that's the big sort of behavior we've been trying to shift with Movember is to try and c- encourage more guys to talk. And we do it in a really fun and lighthearted way, usually, because that's the kind of essence of the brand. You know, growing a mo is fun and easy to do. So we want to kind of keep it. Well, not, not for everyone, Ryan. Um, so, yeah, all, all our kind of campaigns have kind of changed from, um, you know, encouraging people to participate and donate to actually just trying to encourage behavior change and getting guys to talk to their mates. And that's worked really well for them. Like the last three years have been the most um, successful donations and participation years ever. And so that's kind of fundamentally the strategy we've been kind of working on. It's been really 
successful. Moment of Silence was something a little bit disparate to that. It was still in the same behaviour of obviously kind of talking about getting guys to talk, but it was a focused suicide prevention month sort of initiative and idea that we wanted to kind of bring to light the kind of issue that was men's suicide in New Zealand. Um, but then also obviously combine it with the kind of behaviour we're looking to shift, which is guys talking to each other. So, um, yeah, that idea we originally kind of, we thought about, we've been thinking about it for a while. Um, um, we, we tried to actually run it as the, we, we spoke to the All Blacks about running it um, for the All Blacks versus England game at Twickenham the year prior, which was the last game before they went to the Rugby World Cup, which mm. we got pretty far down the track. We were like ready to do it. And they were like, yeah, let's do it sort of thing. Um, but at the last minute, it fell over for a variety of reasons. And so we were pretty pretty gutted, obviously, because we knew we knew the power and the idea. But for, for those that don't know the idea, would you mind just uh, giving them a bit of, bit of context about what it is? Yeah, so fundamentally, the concept was um, a kind of normal tradition within rugby, and I guess sporting pictures generally, is to observe a moment's silence when, you know, a tragedy kind of occurs. So someone prominent passes away, a suicide exists. Um, and so that is a common behaviour that's observed um, at the All Blacks games. Um, and so obviously with the idea of trying to promote talking, um, what we thought would be really interesting was if when the players ran out onto the pitch and they were all standing by side by side and, and, and kind of what would usually be a moment's silence when the men are all kind of told to kind of be quiet and everyone in the stadium, we'd flip that and kind of, and we turned it into a moment against silence and encouraged everyone to make as much noise against silence as possible. And so that, that was the kind of expression of the idea and it kind of lived within the actual game when the All Blacks played Tonga um, um, in September last year, which was kind of in suicide prevention week. Um, and so, yeah, in the stadium, um, when the players ran out onto the field, um, the, the kind of announcer kind of asked everyone, uh, told everyone that we were going to observe a moment against silence rather than a moment again, moment for silence to kind of encourage everyone to talk and make as much noise against silence. And, and that was really powerful because it, it, it was kind of the biggest probably expression of the behaviour we were looking to shift and, um, and obviously being able to tie into the All Blacks, which is, you know, such a massive kind of entity and massive level of influence for a lot of Kiwi men and using them as the behavior change sort of agents kind of gave the, the kind of work that we've been leading towards for Movember just real gravitas and got heaps of kind of conversation and PR and, and kind of global news. I mean, we had Brett Gosper, the kind of CEO of World Rugby kind of saying it should be an initiative that's been done globally for rugby. Mm. And, wow. You know, so it was really cool seeing the momentum it kind of got after the actual primary sort of activation and the ongoing sort of chat and conversation that kind of existed for the, you know, the next kind of month or so. Did you know how viral it would get when you had the idea? Like, were, were, were you kind of thinking that it would be as big as it was? And were you plan like, how do you plan for all that earned media that you're going to get off the back of that? Well, yes and no. I mean, we, we knew the idea was really interesting and, and we knew the idea was a genuine way of talking about the problem that no one really had before. Um, mental health and mental illness is a massive topic of conversation. And obviously the suicide statistics are talked about all the time um, within news media. But that kind of challenge and issue hadn't been expressed in this sort of way ever. 
And so we, we knew it was a unique way to kind of get into the kind of PR conversation. Um, but there was a lot of planning that went into stuff that we just know, knew we wanted to count on and the sort of lead up. And this is all kind of part of, I guess, um, how we kind of thought about promoting the idea is, is working with really closely with New Zealand rugby to kind of go, what kind of personalities within the All Blacks would feel comfortable sort of kind of talking about their experiences with mental illness and how they kind of face challenges as a day-to-day male in New Zealand as part of the media and getting access to some of those personalities to talk in that week leading up, um, you know, within kind of news and sporting environments um, um, was something we planned for. Um, but in terms of the reach and, you know, ongoing sort of um, behaviour change ahead after the fact, I mean, we, we were turning on turning on the, the kind of TV like months after and seeing um, games in Ireland and England play, they're doing the same sort of initiative. No so way. the impact that their ideas had has kind of, has kind of continues to live and breathe. And, and we're kind of, you know, we're still talking to New Zealand rugby about doing it for the mental, mental health round of super rugby in May this year and kind of bringing it down to a more grassroots level as well. And, and kind of, um, yeah, so I guess that sort of ongoing impact, we probably didn't, know that it would have we we were like would be stoked if we got on the news at 6 p.m and you know had the, had, the, had the main pr story on the news which we got but um it was it's cool to kind of see that the kind of behavior has continued to be promoted through um through other ways yeah i mean it's cool when you see your ad out there in the world but i uh, i must assume it's a different feeling when you when you've created an idea that shapes culture and impacts um, people on, on on such a high level. Um, how 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 are you feeling after that campaign went live and and you and you saw it impacting culture? Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, um, myself and and the team that kind of worked on the sort of idea. We all went to the game and we kind of saw it happening in real time. And it was it was actually quite emotional just like seeing it happen. You know, like I mean, how often do you get to kind of work on an idea? I mean, most more often than not, you work on an idea and a really interesting kind of thought and it gets expressed on TV and you watch it at home with your mates or yeah. by yourself probably um, um, versus like the, an idea like this where you can actually experience it with the people mm. that kind of contributed towards the actual idea, which was really powerful. And so it was cool. Like we all went down to the game. We kind of, you know, we kind of had a beer together and, you know, it was, it was all cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, what's kind of, what's been great about it, like I said, is kind of the ongoing sort of conversation it's kind of given us and, and um, the brand in Movember, like ongoing sort of um, place in the kind of vernacular. Um, yeah. One of the issues Movember has is it's a November concentrated campaign. Yeah. Um, whereas obviously what they do is they do that campaign to fundraise for a whole lot of kind of initiatives that they kind of do throughout the year. And what this has given them the ability to do is kind of talk about that on a more kind of ongoing basis, which is cool. Yeah, that's great. And you like, like you oddly became kind of a spokesperson for the idea. Like I, I saw footage of you getting interviewed on radio and stuff about it. Like, did you expect that at all? <laughs> did you have to get media training before you were doing that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I did not get media training and that's probably why. <laughs> so um, no, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm in a pretty relative, I'm in a relatively fortunate position on Movember where I've worked on it um, for the past few years and, and kind of being the architect, I guess, of, of the strategy behind what's given them their kind of new um, 
kind of strategy of how they express themselves in New Zealand. And and with New Zealand being a relative, relatively lean country for Movember, it's literally a one-man band that kind of runs it. Um, over time, we've, because we've been working on it so closely together and we've built such a good relationship, he's kind of used me almost as an extension of his marketing team. Mm. And so um, when it comes to November and when it comes to sort of, he's, that's when he's like, like at his most busiest and when that's when the heat of kind of PR opportunities come up for the organization. Um, he started to leverage me as another kind of person, personality to kind of talk about the work that we're doing and promote the initiatives, um, which is cool. Um, scary initially, considering I had no media training. And <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> it's a pretty heavy topic too, to be talking about like on mainstream media, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Because it's obviously a very serious topic. But the idea of growing a moustache, which is the fundamental behaviour that is, you know, within Movember is funny and silly. So you go into these kind of interviews with a shit moustache. <laughs> absolutely ripping into you. Um, and, and then trying to have a serious conversation around men's health is tricky to navigate. You do have a moustache in, in pretty much every photo we've seen you in. Yeah, uh, is, this, is this a tactical choice? <laughs> it's, it's basically just so I know when November comes around, I'll have a mis- <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Now, this might be a deeply personal question, but what, what were you yelling out when you had your moment against silence? What, what did you scream? Ironically, we were probably the most quiet people in the stadium. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we were all just standing there with our phones videoing it. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we didn't say a thing. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. It's very ironic considering we're telling everyone to talk. Now, the, the other thing we wanted to talk to you about was um, very early on in your career, you got to work on a brand that I think most uh, uh, most planners, I would say, would want to work on, and that's PlayStation, the coolest brand since sliced bread like, can you tell us about what, like what what that experience was like because that ended up in some really good creative work right yeah totally i mean quite um the, i was really lucky i guess when i first started off again going back to my kind of first agency which was a media agency in Stockholm. um my first year first kind of client that i kind of got put on was sony playstation and sony pictures and i was like great this is cool and I guess with that brand being a global sort of brand that we kind of did as a media agency, there wasn't really a creative agency relationship within that um, because it was just global assets that we kind of would run from a media perspective. Um, And so it was kind of really cool and interesting opportunity for a young guy that wanted to be a strategist to try and think about ways that we could kind of, rather than just running international sort of assets and creative to think of like bespoke media-led ideas that we could kind of do something really interesting for. Um, And so it just gave me like a lot of confidence quite early on just around just throwing shit ideas at the wall and seeing what stuck. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, that that, that was kind of really cool. I did that for a couple of years and, and yeah, as you kind of talked about, kind of did some really kind of interesting work quite early on, which, which, um, which, which was great. Now it ended up winning some some Khan Lions, and it seems like you're apprehensive to to drop that fact. Um, why why is that? Why are you apprehensive about bringing that up? And what what was the work? It was God of War, right? Yeah, well, well I'm apprehensive about it because it literally was one of those shit ideas that just happened to stick. <laughs> 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 I, felt like I really fell into. <laughs> um, um, 
I had no idea like what strat like I was just faking as a strategist at that particular point and and I, I was just lucky right moment right time to kind of come up with something that the client latched onto and and I had a lot of help to try and ultimately bring it to life um, from more senior people that knew what they were doing um, but um, essentially yeah the idea was at that time it was probably showing that age a little bit but the PSP had just launched yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, God of War was kind of their big signature sort of game to launch onto the PSP. And, um, and the whole sort of kind of concept and premise of God of War was the, the power of God is in your hands. You know, that was the sort of philosophy behind the game. And, mm. and um, without being a gamer, you know, I, I couldn't really attest to what the game was all about, but that's something I latched onto in terms of that was the idea behind it. Um, and so what I started thinking about was... Um, where are sort of spaces or environments that we feel like we could kind of give people the power to have, um, you know, the power of the world in their hands. And, and I kind of started thinking around brands and other brands that kind of played in a similar space to young males and, and burger fuel, which is this kind of really kind of cool, hip, funky sort of burger shop. It was way ahead of its time. Um, you know, before burgers became a really cool premium thing. Um, um, they, what they have with their burgers is this thing called a doofer. Um, so when you eat your burger, you put it inside this little cardboard box sort of thing to hold it. So everything, when things falling out, it all kind of captures within this box. <laughs> and it's kind of really interesting idea that you could kind of brand um, the doofer as a PSP and brand it as the burger of the gods. Right. So kind of association to, to kind of having the power of the world in your hands through eating, you know, a burger that was branded God of War. So, um, <laughs> As I mentioned, shit idea that just happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's a, it's it's oh, like sometimes all it is is like just the the weird lateral link, right? Yeah. I mean, just thinking, oh, what could we do with the the power of God in my hands? Like, like what what can I kind of do with that? Is that? Is that yeah. it, do you reckon that's like the heart of creative comms planning? Is just getting to yeah. that kind of expression? Like, yeah, I think adjacent sort of spaces. I mean, you know, thinking about the crux of what you're trying to do for a brand and then thinking about other interesting sort of adjacent spaces that could be linked. And that's where I guess a lot of the kind of great sort of creative concepts come to, or kind of strategic directions for creative concepts come to life when you can kind of combine a really interesting sort of brand insight with something just much broader that's happening in culture or, mm. you know, um, audience behavior or whatever and, and finding a link between different things and, and, that's that's how I love to kind of think about things, and um, yeah, and I guess that sort of example potentially wasn't as as a direct link as, <laughs> as it could have been, but uh, it's stuck. I mean, you know, it was, it was an interesting use of media, um, you know, that that had kind of never really been thought of before because no one else <laughs> is as stupid as me to kind of think about it as a media. Yeah. But, um, but that's what we were talking about with the kids before, right? Like, it's sometimes being young and, like, just figuring out, like, uh, this is a weird thing that no one's ever thought about before. Like, the, that's kind of, like, your strength at that, mm. that point in time. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, and I, I guess that's, that's a kind of, that's, that's a really cool opportunity, I think, for the industry is getting, getting people who think about things just in a really different way into the industry really young. And just kind of seeing seeing what comes out of that. And I think it's, it's going to take time, obviously, but um, I think I think the more kind of agencies and people within agencies that really encourage that, like the better. It, now you're in a senior kind of position at the moment. Do you have people that you're managing and mentoring? 
at the moment and like how do you approach that process yeah i do um yeah um it's something i really enjoy um it's it's cool kind of seeing people start really green and raw and inquisitive about things go from that to being able to piece things together in a way that kind of feels really interesting to you and um and what's even better is kind of you know talking to younger people that i kind of work with and and manage around how i think about things and then using that them using that as inspiration to go and think about it in that sort of lens but in, in their own sort of way and and that's where that's where i get the most enjoyment is i mean i'd be gutted if i was kind of mentoring someone that just kind of came out and kind of thought and acted just like me um relative to how can i kind of give them the tools of what i've learned to kind of take that as a base and kind of build off it with their own sort of personality mm. and and that's something i enjoy the most um especially when you kind of latch on to to young inquisitive people that want to be strategists that that just get it and i've been fortunate yeah. enough to be able to kind of work with you know multiple sort of people that have kind of got that right from the get-go what what is that what is that thing like how do you know that they get it well it's it's thing it's it's the questions they ask that is more around why are we doing it or why have you thought about it like that or um t- tell me a little bit more about why you kind of arrived at that sort of idea is that sort of kind of why behavior mm. um, that you kind of recognize and pick up on quite quickly versus that's cool interesting like now what do i need to go and do you know which i think is is what separates someone you know is going to be a strategist versus someone who's going to be in more of a implementational executional role within an agency is is that kind of inquisitiveness and and desire to just learn um and ask the ask how and why you arrived at kind of particular ways you've kind of come up with um so i i don't know i guess in my in my career i've been fortunate and lucky enough to work with you know quite a few people who have had that and and i can't really call out anyone specifically that i don't think has had that so um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> they won't they won't they won't be listening they won't be listening to this more viewership yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um so yeah so yeah I, I think it's just that really really kind of um inquisitive nature to kind of understand really is the is the thing that you can kind of identify quite quickly cool should we uh jump into the pitch i think we should let's let's do let's it let's do it how did you feel about it, by the way, just before we like get stuck in? Uh, it was a really interesting sort of project, <laughs> right? so I can't say that I'm a bug eater, so <laughs> I didn't feel like I could rip off of that naturally, so I had to do a bit of reading last night. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what would be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Woo! Would you eat a wetter whopper? When someone eats and how they choose to eat can reveal a lot about a person. Put curry in your leftover bolognese and you're probably an Aussie with Indian heritage. Eat fried eggs and jam you might definitely be a Soviet Russian spy. But what would people think of you if you regularly chowed down on bugs? To us at the Son of a Pitch podcast, the thought of leaning in for a big fat after lunch smooch only to catch a glimpse of a cricket leg between your lover's teeth just isn't that appealing. Yet somehow, our creepy crawly friends are starting to gain serious traction within the world of food. Companies like Chirps Chips, for instance, 
have found great success bringing the entomological to the gastrological. Thanks, Vince, for writing that one. <laughs> Utilizing the protein-packed power of crickets, they've been able to create a brand new food niche, cramming the critters into everything from protein powder to corn chips. Ryan, given you live in the land famous for being the home of the most giant cricket of all, the wetter, we thought who better to write a strategy to put eating edible bugs on the map. Your task? Create a campaign that gets ediblebugshop.com.au crickets chips into the mouths of the masses. Your criteria of success is to sell 500,000 units of edible bug shop cricket chips. And you've been given a budget of 40k. Ryan, how'd you go? <laughs> That's a tiny budget. I forgot, <laughs> forgot we gave him such a tiny budget. Tiny budget, a lot of sales. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought I thought I thought the reason why you'd give a Kiwi this brief is, is pretty indirect to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I was I was racking my head when I wrote this one, I'm not gonna lie. Every brief that I write is just another version of the other brief, but with a weird item attached. Well, yeah, I mean like as like I was saying, it's it, I'm I'm not a I'm not a bug eater, so this is something I didn't really feel was a comfortable thing to kind of just riff off so i had to do a bit of reading last night and it's surprising all the benefits is why you should be eating bugs there's there's the health the health sort of thing so there's more protein in a cricket than uh, per gram than there is in beef who would have known iron magnesium there's lots of kind of health benefits there's sustainability sort of um uh you know, benefits to it. There's less footprint on the environment in terms of harvesting and kind of growing bugs and there's less gas emissions than meat. So it's kind of, you know, there's a big sustainability story with why you should eat bugs or why you should be thinking about eating bugs for a more sustainable kind of, kind of world. Um, and then, and then there's the kind of the helping solve world, world hunger sort of like ideal, idealistic sort of view on things as well. So, um, you know, although we, we produce enough food to feed the planet, only one, you know, one in seven people are still hungry. So, um, you know, we're producing a whole lot of kind of things that we eat as a regular diet, particularly in Western cultures, that is, is not sustainable and it's impacting the environment in such a way that it's, it's not going to be a long-term um, um, way that we're going to be able to kind of protect the environment. Mm. Um, interestingly, two billion people worldwide eat bugs every day. Yeah, right. I know, right? It's, it's a thing and it's, it's like countries like Thailand and Mexico and lots of Africa. It's really normal. They're eating it every day. Um, they're doing it in really interesting ways of different flavor combinations and it's just part of their cultures. They've done it right from day dot and, and, and they continue to do so. Um, weirdly, perhaps, but it's not the same for Western cultures. Um, so bugs were largely dismissed from, from local diets and from the days of colonization, really. Um, so Europeans and by extension kind of European settlers as they kind of went into kind of um, cultures that they kind of came into, um, they've never had a bug-eating tradition. So over time, they quite quickly just kind of took away that kind of element of the diet from kind of native, um, you know, um, ethnicities and the countries that they kind of went into. Um, and I, I guess that kind of rejection of bugs has has and that culture of rejecting things that are slightly different to what a European diet looks like has become really prevalent. So you know we don't eat the wrong fruits and you know the wrong animal parts. We're quite wasteful in terms of how we eat meat, um, and you know 
anything that doesn't feel familiar to us just equals yuck as kind of West in Western culture. You know, other than the sort of kind of odd experimentation, you know, with local cuisines when we travel, you know, we might try a snail, you know. Um, yeah. we, most people won't introduce new foods into their regular diet. So I, I think that that's the kind of problem really is despite the benefits of bugs and they're very clear as we've just kind of outlined, Western cultures are reluctant reluctant to introduce cuisines that isn't familiar. Mm, so mm. the food isn't familiar to, to me or to what I've kind of had right from, from kind of childhood. It's really hard to kind of integrate something new into my diet. And, you know, there's odd examples of that, you know, kale, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, things that kind of have kind of been introduced into our diets sort of, you know, later, but most more often than not, you know, Western cultures are pretty adverse to introducing new things to their diet. Um, so once a culture rejects eating insects, that norm can really be easily taught from sort of parent to child. And when you kind of think of that, that kind of development that children kind of go through, um, babies kind of explore the world by putting everything into their mouth, right? You think of kids, you know, you think of like little babies, in the, in the sand pit, they're kind of putting sand in their mouth, they're kind of picking up dog poo, putting it in their mouth, and their parents are yelling, no, don't do that. That was, that was me as a kid. That, that, that <laughs> behavior is just pushed into kids right from day dot, and, and parents really discourage anything that they wouldn't eat to their children. Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of kind of train of thought got me kind of thinking is the insight can be around what constitutes as acceptable to eat is ingrained into us from childhood. Mm. So once said in childhood, attitudes to food and what is constituted as an appropriate diet is really hard to shift. And for all the kind of reasons I've outlined, you know, once you kind of reach adulthood, it's really hard for you to kind of go, you should eat something that you've never eaten before. Whereas for a child, it's, it's much easier because they don't have that kind of regular, um, behavior that's been pushed into them around what they should eat and what they shouldn't. Um, so, you know, you kind of think about that, you kind of go, what's kind of, what's kind of taught to us as appropriate to eat is really kind of ingrained into us from childhood. And, and it's really hard to kind of introduce new sort of behaviors into adulthood. Um, and for all the sort of sustainability sort of stuff that we've kind of talked about in terms of, um, earlier on in terms of the benefits of eating bugs, you know, as global population continues to grow, like we're, we're growing at such a rate and the environment continues to decay, the next generations will need to think much more ecologically about they eat. Mm. And so if things don't change, this is the group that may actually might have to raise their families in a world where food is really scarce. Mm. And that's, that's a really big sort of challenge. So that kind of led me to thinking a strategic kind of opportunity for kind of launching these bug chips is to introduce cricket chips to children. So that becomes a really interesting kind of audience opportunity and, and, and a kind of strategic opportunity for kind of ingraining a different way of eating behavior into, into people. Um, so you kind of think of what that could look like in terms of a, an idea or a campaign. And I've kind of shitly named the solution, don't forget to eat your browns. And so... <laughs> So why not on sort of Earth Day, which is on the 5th of June, we Mm. create an educational curriculum for primary schools on sustainable nutrition. And so kids are taught about the health benefits of eating different food groups that are better for the environment. 
and what constitutes as healthy food. You could give them sort of challenges around what has more nutritional value out of a muesli bar versus a bug, and you can kind of introduce things like cricket chips and Vitabat, another one of their things, Vitabug snacks. Mm. You know, to give them a taste of different ways to eat. You could also, you know, you could do it in more of a challenge sort of way and introduce that into them as 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 kind of a food to eat within that sort of environment. Um, you know, you could kind of, in the same way that the five plus a day sort of story was kind of done to educate kids on fruit, we could create posters for kind of primary schools, um, for the classrooms and booklets for parents to kind of educate them on the nutritional value on bugs relative to other common common sort of lunchbox food. Um, I mean, you could even kind of partner with a sort of school lunch provider like, um, I'm not too sure what the Australian equivalent is, but we've got something called My Food Bag where you can kind of buy lunch and you get um, a lunch to a kid in need, um, you know, where we could kind of introduce that as a regular thing into kids' kind of school boxes that we kind of do that way as well um, to kind of make it more a regular routine and part of their sort of daily diet. So, so yeah, that was kind of the space I thought was kind of really interesting, like a, a, something like bug chips, which have all of these great benefits but still so many, most people in Western cultures just not choosing to eat them. Why not go for a totally new sort of generation where we can kind of ingrain a new way of eating into that doesn't have those kind of um, preconceptions around what is acceptable to eat and sort of change that behavior right from the, from the primary school. Wow. That's such an interesting way to think about that problem. Obviously, you go to the health benefits. Obviously, you go to uh, premiumizing them, putting them in restaurants, getting it across to the kids. I think that would totally work because like on the schoolyard, like the coolest thing in your in your lunchbox is like the chips, right? <laughs> and yeah. it, like you wouldn't care about that if you grew up with them. Like it's such an easy thing. Like kids aren't going to knock that back ever, are they? It might, it might give them some street cred as well as around these new fancy chips that I've never even seen before, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is an interesting way to think about it. I was kind of just, yeah, to your point, I kind of initially started thinking about those obvious roots, which was, you know, tying it into the cuisines that are already eating it and doing it as like a, you know, westernizing the Eastern bar snack, you know, sort of space. And that's kind of where I initially started thinking about it. But um, I still think it's hard. It becomes quite fear factory quite quickly. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, whereas if you could kind of take it quite seriously and, and kind of actually treat it like you would any sort of educational curriculum in a primary school, it gives it sort of, um, credibility and it gives it you know it's backed up by all the benefits of why and and there's a there's a validity into into why you should do it i mean obviously there's a flow-on effect of why you would need to kind of educate the parents around why your kids are starting yeah. to eat bug chips yeah. <laughs> um but you know uh, i think if a parent is quite is sold on the benefits as to why they should eat them. They just don't want to do it on themselves. Um, why not kind of try to ingrain that sort of behavior into, into how their parents, into how pa as parents you think a little bit more sustainably around what your children eat. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question was like the audience that you came at, are obviously the kids themselves. So I was going to ask, are you like banking on the kids asking the parents for the chips or is this going to be like a distro deal in the schools with with kind of the food programs you were talking about to hit that 500 
uh, units sold or like <laughs> a lot of units. That's why I added in the regular getting it into the um, to the thing like eat me. You know, it's like a regular lunchbox. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think you would need to absolutely kind of educate the parents as to why, and you could do that in a variety of ways. You could kind of treat it like a like a um, like a school um, community hall type initiative where you kind of get the parents in and do a co-education thing around sustainable nutrition. Um, and then you get really focused into, you get the buy-in from the parents as to why and how, and then you kind of go quite deeply into the kind of educational curriculum for the kids. I mean, the educational kind of side of things, I think you can do it in really fun ways. Yeah. And you yeah. Kind of add an element of um, this or that sort of kind of um, challenge to the whole kind of thing. Um, but I think one of the barriers for the product is just getting it into people's mouths and for, for all, like, if you eat something that is in a chip format, you're taking away the fundamental barrier to the problem, which is um, it's a bug and I don't want to put a bug in my mouth. It's in the shape of something that's familiar, you know, you're kind of removing some of those barriers. Mm. Um, So I think for kids, when they don't have that, that sort of long tenure of being told not to eat something, you know, it just feels like it's a, it's a, it's quite a big opportunity to kind of try and change the way that they think about food earlier on. For, for the education piece, it might also be interesting to like re-release the food pyramid and just have it like mostly, mostly, <laughs> mostly bugs. Mostly bugs, yeah. There's like a plague of locusts <laughs> on there. Because <Yeah. laughs> that thing is it's so outdated, so I think it needs a, uh, a revamp. It does need a revamp, just a funnel of bugs. Yeah, Get, <laughs> eat your browns, kids. I think so. I think the wetter would be at the top, and then you go down, obviously, accordingly to crickets, etc. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the last question we want to ask you is: um, we're 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 obviously on the, off the back of this strategy and the strength in the strategy. We're looking for uh, business partners in a new edible bug shop venture. Uh, <laughs> would you be willing to uh, to go in? You know, us three in the the edible bugs to schools uh, program. I'd love to. I, I think it's not it's not something I think I can do by myself. So let's do it. <laughs> All right, well, the son of a pitch podcast is uh, here to help you with that. Yeah, so, we're the, well, uh, joint joint venture. That, that's it. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Well, I, I think that's where we end it. Right. Thanks so much for coming on the pod, Ryan, and uh, especially from uh, over in New Zealand, where it's obviously quite dark and late <laughs> at the at moment. The moment. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. No. Th- thanks for having me, boys. That was fun. I'm the mental health and bug guy from New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> what a portfolio. Yeah. Faces, this looks, look, how, um, it's making me think around the new idea for November. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, Time to get it started. Uh, Give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Pitch.